This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem. Overlooking the Western Wall. We're in an expanding universe. The universe expands, and it has been an expanding and expanding and expanding, and it's gone beyond any uh, point of no return. It, it can't expand more. It's done. It's, meaning it's, meaning, sorry, it can't contract ever. Because there are those atheists that believe that the universe, they know the universe is expanding, which is problematic, obviously, because nobody wants an expanding universe if you're an atheist. Because if you say it's an expanding universe, well, then what was it before? So it was obviously contracted into one point, which is what you learn when you learn the Big Bang Theory. But then you have two questions. One is, where'd that point come from? Because what did it do? It made itself. Nothing makes itself. Nothing ever made itself in the history of science. No one ever saw anything make itself. And so, therefore, that point had to have been made. But even if you want to do what my teachers did, and they skipped that question of where that point came from, they decided to skip that conveniently. And then, but then you're still going to have a big banger. Because you got to have someone who banged the point, that, meaning that point of matter, that condensed point of matter that the Big Bang Theory talks about, which, again, is just a theory. But someone had to bang that thing, because otherwise it stays static, and there's no space nor time. There's only this one condensed form of matter, which they say the world expanded from. <laughs> Interestingly, the Ramban, the great Nachmanides who lived a thousand years ago, he, he also said that the world comes from a, a point of matter. And he, he agrees with that. And he also agrees with the time frame that the Big Bang talks about. And so, the, but nevertheless, the Big Bang's major problem for atheists. And so what they wanted to believe at one point is that maybe, it, okay, it's expanding, fine, we see it's expanding. That's, that's, that's uh, you know, something that you can prove, but... But maybe it's going to contract again. But then the math was many years ago. The math was the, the math was the math was that they that it will never contract. That it's expanded beyond point of any possible point of return, which means the universe is just continually expanding. Now, this automatically posits that there was a an original creator automatically. Now. That doesn't automatically mean that you believe in that creator as God. It could be you're like a theoretical physicist who sits around and says, you know, we don't know what made this, but we're going to spend our lives trying to figure it out. And I would answer that theoretical physicist, and I've got to say this to several of them, I would say to that theoretical physicist, um, you know, sorry, Charlie, but you've you, you got to decide what you're doing tomorrow. You understand? Like, we don't have all day for you to figure out where matter comes from. Because in the end, you've got to live your life. And you've got to live your life based on something. Whereas they think they have all the time in the world. And why do they think that? Why do they think they have all the time in the world? And the answer is it's because our society lives so, so relativistically that to him, it doesn't really matter. He doesn't really care. It doesn't mean anything. You understand? It, it, it just doesn't matter to him. And he's just, he's just like everyone else. Just do whatever feels good. 
just do whatever feels good. And then uh, a little mental masturbation in the laboratory at the university tomorrow where you'll play again with protons, neutrons, and electrons and, and theorize. But life is not theoretical. It's not even a little theoretical. And there's great stakes. There's a lot at stake. And there's big risks involved. And we have to decide what's meaningful. And then we have this whole other thing, which is unexplainable, is a conscience. There's no human being that's been without a conscience, yet not one primate has one. Primates have no conscience. You go into an, an orangutan or a, a chimpanzee cage that may look like, hey, they're all having so much fun, maybe I'll join the fun. Yeah, that's a good way to turn yourself into about 100 pieces. Yeah. They don't have a moral code. They have a hierarchy. They have a hierarchy. They protect that hierarchy. Even wolves won't necessarily kill their opponent because they're somehow part of the pack after, you know, after they've been dominated and you know, the hierarchy's been made clear. They're likely, the, the, the wolf that won, will pro- won that fight will probably not kill it because you need the pack. And let the wolf be part of the pack now that the pecking order's been made. So you've got to figure out what you're doing with your life because you've got a voice inside that says there's things that are right and wrong. Hitler tried to remove that voice. He believed, I mean, I don't know where he got this. I understand why he thinks Jews progener- progenerated the, the, you know, the, the importance of the moral voice. I think Jews were very much part of that, but it's not like we invented it. It's, it's in you. Yet it's not in your physiology, and they've never found it. It's not like they found the conscience in your brain. They can see what your brain does while the conscience is like feeling things, like, for example, guilt, or, or maybe even the fear of making a mistake and doing the wrong thing. Maybe that shows up in the brain. But, but the conscience itself, no, not, not part of brain science. And yet every human being has it. So it's clearly spiritual by nature, considering that it doesn't have any, uh, doesn't show up in brain science. So here we have a world that couldn't have created itself, so therefore it must be a created world. And, and we have beings inside the world called humans, with, you know, which are quite a lot of us. And we have this free will, we can make decisions. We can mess things up badly for ourselves and others. And we also have the ability to make the world better. Probably to the amount we can make it worse, we could probably make it better. And, and every one of us has a voice inside our head that talks about better or worse behavior. Now, depending on your education, you'd have, you know, one person, what's better than that? Education system might be worse for another one. Like they, I mean, there's certain things that are just universal. Like, don't kill. Don't do stuff that harms people in a way you wouldn't want to be harmed. I call that natural law. I think you don't need an education for that. Meaning, once you know something hurts, now, of course, human beings are nuts. So, generally, hurt people hurt people. I mean, generally, people wound where they're wounded, which is, you know, that's just one of our weird quirks. It's some bizarre you know, kind of random revenge we seek on others. 
to hurt others in the places we were hurt. But uh, given that you're at least a little awake, because I wouldn't call that very awake, I would call that marginally awake, that you no longer hurt people that in ways that you felt hurt. Because uh, that hurt that you felt that hurt that you felt is an indicator that that's what you don't do to others. Like that's, that's a clear message. Don't ever do that to another person because you felt that already. It's not random. Right? You, you've got a clear path to at least something not to do. <laughs> you may not feel it's so clear what to do, but what not to do is clearly what was hurtful. And yet you'll see humans do the exact opposite. And that's why we learned from Hillel who said to a potential convert who asked him to teach the Torah, he said to him, I mean, it was kind of a strange answer. He didn't teach him the Torah. He said to him, don't do unto others what is hurtful to you. In other words, at least take the first step towards <coughs> awakeness, being awake. At least take the first step towards being awake. And awake means you're no longer hurting people in the ways you've been hurt. Now, obviously, you can make that much more sophisticated. Like, for example, um, everyone in this room, I promise you, is live, all of you, each one of you individually and those watching this on screen or listening, um, you, are, you have created a worldview that supports your craziness. Meaning, if you, every home's a little nuts. Like, you ever seen a normal family? <laughs> you ever met a normal family? It's an amazing, the Haredi world, they have such a big, you know, the black hat world is like... It's a really big thing to be normal. Like, you've got to be as normal as possible. Meanwhile, no one's ever met a normal family, and I'm still waiting, waiting to meet my first normal person. <laughs> and me being, by totally embracing how whacked out I am, has made me be amongst, I, the way people react to me, and the way I keep being asked to speak in different places and stuff, and, and people flocking to my seminars, I would sense that I'm seen in a pretty high level of normal. So I guess, I guess maybe one of the clues for how to become normal is by embracing your whacked outness and celebrate it and make it shine, polish how whacked you are. Or maybe you're different. That's a lot of people like. Well, whatever it is, I'm embracing something that people are interested in. And so, so stop trying to amputate your uniqueness and, and polish it and celebrate it and and make a difference for this place. But meanwhile, back to your crazy family. All of us grew up in a crazy family. Yes, you. And, and what happens is because you're raised in it, it becomes kind of a worldview. But the, problem is, the, but the big problem is that you wind up marrying someone <laughs> who doesn't have that worldview that you've somehow created around why your crazy family is normal. Now, that person also is from a crazy family. And they have a whole worldview why their family's normal. And it's a whole philosophical explanation that, that no one's ever articulated, by the way. It's, it's funny that this is the explanation that no one can explain. Because no one's ever really, very few people have ever really dissected it of our, our crazy worldviews from our homes. And it's also, it's, it's so in us that it's like hard to see. It's like a fish trying to describe the water in its aquarium, you know, it's, it's, a little too in, it's a little too close to home to explain it. And so, too, we're a little too close to our homes that we grew up in. And, and then we try to mix that insanity with someone else's insanity. And, and no wonder things get, you know, iffy 
which makes sense a little bit, you know, if you think about the Haredi system where everyone's trying to be as normal as possible. In other words, everyone's amputating their differences as much as possible to the point where where if you can marry a family that's very much like yours, maybe even from the same group, all victims of the Holocaust, you know, which helps. So, meaning at this point we're talking about great-grandkids of the Holocaust, but everyone's great-grandkids of the Holocaust, and then, so we're all part of this same worldview, and then you, and then you marry each other, it could be you see things the same sick way. And now you can raise your kids that way too. So, so, Maybe this is really the way to go here for, for, for them, but, but it's, uh, it's not a... There's a sick one right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably a politician. <laughs> if it's not a politician, they should have a speedy recovery. They usually don't make this much noise when politicians come. I'll let you know if you should duck. Now... <laughs> I was going to throw something. <laughs> So, anyway, the um, so let's let's back it out a little bit here. Is that worlds don't make themselves; nothing makes itself, and yet we have this created world. So the created world had to come from somewhere. Wherever that somewhere is is really nowhere, because think of the word somewhere. Somewhere means it's in the world, so it came from nowhere. Our world came from nowhere, and you got to face that that our world came from absolutely nowhere. And I think we know it intuitively, meaning if I ask you before there was something, what would you say? Before there was something, there was? Everyone's going to say that. Intuitively, you're going to say there was nothing before there was something. But we know this in physics. That's why we have a department called theoretical physics, because they can't deal with that, because the second you say that this something came from nothing, you're automatically saying there's a God. Now, God doesn't mean anything either. Don't get rid of all your, you know, Western convictions and all your, all the stuff you were taught about God. Like, get rid of that. Because that's not what we're talking about here. Because if you're talking about nothing, so then any conventional belief or any construct or any, any concept of God is going to be automatically wrong. Because if you have a concept of nothing, well, you're obviously not discussing nothing. Because if it's a concept, it's already something. Whatever that concept is, which cannot possibly be God. You understand that can't be God. So whatever, whoever you thought God is is exactly who he's not. <laughs> Sorry to take away your concept of God, but I mean you can keep your concept of God if you love it. You know, keep you on track. But but I'm going right now. I'm really stripping things down here to just the fact that there was nothing before there was something and. And something, nothing comes from nothing. And so since nothing became, created a world ultimately, this expanding universe of ours, so therefore there's some kind of something that has some kind of consciousness. Now it turns out that this whole world is really a digital simulation. And that's where the physicists and the Kabbalists get along. So where the, where the Kabbalists, sorry, where the physicists don't want to talk about God, so they're just going to theorize a million things, they, they do like to talk about Kabbalistic, the Kabbalistic digital simulation stuff that Kabbalists like to talk about. So when it comes to physicists and Kabbalists, we get along very well on the digital simulation level. Because think about it, if God created the world from himself or itself, God obviously doesn't have genitalia, so it's a little presumptuous to call God him, but we often call him him anyway because 
of separate reasons in mysticism, but but uh, obviously God doesn't have genitalia, you know, and, if, and if He did, it'd be really scary. You know, just ask Mary. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's made. Well, I mean, he may have genitalia, but it's nothing, because we just got through saying it's nothing. So, I, obviously, you know, if it's nothing, so he ain't got nothing either. And the only reason we call it a he, just real quick, just so you know, I'm holding questions now. And the only reason we call it a he is because is because in all mystical traditions throughout, this is universal in mystical traditions is the causal is called the masculine, and the, rec- and the receival is called the feminine. That's just the way it goes. So, like, the things, the things holding... No, we're good. The things holding up in the windows right now are called hinges. Yeah, that's what's holding these doors together. And there's a masculine, there's a feminine over there. Can you turn off the AC? You, it's fine, it's fine. He can reach it. And, the, and your chairs are screwed together that way, and... And your, your zipper's working that way, and my buttons are working that way, and there's nothing you can look at that is not either masculine or feminine. Everything is that way. That's all there is to it. There's just, all there is is, is receiver and causer. And, that's, and, and which is very interesting, because when women are like doing their most womanly thing, which is taking care of us men, they're really causing. So they're really being men. And we're like receiving their, their love and the soup and... Uh, you know, my wife and daughter put in front of me the chick, Shabbos chicken and the Shabbos rice, which was like melted in my mouth. Like the whole thing was like, it required zero chewing. It must have come straight out of the soup. And the, uh, they were in the masculine. I was in the feminine because I was receiving. And so I was doing the, I was doing my best job at being the feminine chicken and rice eater. And they were doing their best job of the masculine of like, of like causing that to go from a, the pot into my, onto my plate and then in, at the table. And now, by the way, I put on the masculine real quick afterwards and I bust my plate to the sink. Okay? Didn't wash it. <laughs> you guys were all sitting there waiting for me. Didn't wash it. Let's not go too far. You know, I was raised, I was raised with two housekeepers, you know. You know, like, you can take the narcissist out of California. <laughs> You realize how that was going to sound? You could take the narcissist from California, but you can't take the California from the narcissist. <laughs> like, I think, I think Either way, the narcissist stayed the same. I think um, self-absorbed is a better adjective for California. Then, uh, it's no, they're narcissists. It's a personal, uh, narcissism is one of the ten personality disorders unless you're from Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is really funny for East Coasters to marry people from LA, only to discover that that you know they're going to be thinking only about themselves I all the time. To think about yourself? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh! Maybe Manhattan, Upper West Side. Oh, five towns. Five towns aren't big givers. I thought they were like totally good men or thinking about the others. I thought they were like really accommodating. 
I think you're making a mistake. No, you're making a mistake in distinctions. Listen, you're making a mistake in distinctions. Let me distinguish this for you. Narcissist means the whole world's about me. You're discussing ego. That's a separate subject. New York probably has bigger ego than Californians. Californians are sitting there eating brown rice and saying ohm all day. Yeah, except someone needed them, but their phone's on, do not disturb. That's narcissism. Okay? No one's doing that necessarily on the East Coast and in the five towns. However, they are, they are, and I don't want to speak about the five towns, but they're, you know, people like to be the big guy in town in New York is like, means a lot. You know, it doesn't mean that much in California. Kind of, it just doesn't mean that much. You understand? So you were you were blurring just uh, ego with uh, with uh, blurring ego with narcissism. Yeah, two separate things. And by the way, those some of those big guys in town are the most generous guys I've ever met. I mean, talk about like a day. If I have a little, couple hours off, like next thing I know, I got a steam room and a massage and a and like these guys are like they're making a whole new yom tov out of me. You know, L.A. He's like, yeah, I got a sauna, and I'm sitting there going like, really? Who's in there right now? He's like, no one. Why? Just wondering who's in your sauna. That's all. Kind of nice if it were me. And he's like, oh really? Okay, so I guess I'll take your number. <laughs> I can kind of one hand how many saunas uh, people's saunas I've been in in California <laughs> on the east coast I don't think there's anyone owns a sauna I haven't been in so the uh, <laughs> all my east coast students and friends all just the first thing is always like you can have a sauna you know, they're just trying to lure me in you know to like have me work with their teenager or something you know their teenager all he wants to do is smoke cannabis and Take Xanax. So. Like that Xanax. <laughs> Maybe you can speak to my kid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not talking to that kid. <laughs> Just kidding. Wow, you guys are putting me in a funny mood. It's so funny. I did not walk in here with this mood. It's all your fault. <laughs> you better turn on that AC, man. We're going to yeah. die. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> There goes the lights. So, okay, listen up, listen up. I'm going to just say this as quickly as possible. Okay, no more interruptions. <laughs> I'm the one been interrupting my own class. No one's interrupted at all. Are you interrupted for a second? Oh wait, please don't talk about cannabis right now. I'm, since the AC's on, we're going to burn a little, uh, a little uh, Lavona. Incense. This is temple incense, but it's not. It's only one of the eleven spices. So, so listen up. Listen up. Before there was something, there was nothing. Since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. Okay, that means there's a God. Okay, means there has to be a God. Next, next. You have a moral voice inside of you. It doesn't know exactly what to do, but it, but it, it definitely has this right and wrong thing going on. Depending on how you're educated, will be what's right, and depending on how you're educated, would be wrong. And that's, but it's in you. And no, it didn't come from the Jews as much as Hitler thought. Eradicating the Jews would eradicate the conscience. If you read his writings, 
That's what he was out to do. The next is that that how do we know that what we're supposed to do or not supposed to do is directly related to to Torah, to the the actual Bible. And when I say the Bible, I'm talking about the actual prophet prophecies of Israel. I'm not talking about the New Testament test whatever it's called. Testament. Testament. We're not talking about that. Okay? That's not our discussion. But we're talking about the original prophecies. How do we know that's God's will and wisdom? And and the answer is is that you can know. You can know if that's real. And if it's real, if you find out that it is real, that's why it's called Israel. If you find out, no. If you find out that it is real, so now you know what to do with yourself. Like you actually know how to move your body throughout the day. I'm not talking about necessarily at work or whatever, but you know how to make your choices. You want to align your choices with the Creator who gave these prophecies to our world. You want to align yourself with the prophecies. We live in a generation where no one cares about that. No one cares about these discussions. And no one cares about that. And, and, and even people who do care about that, the second they start hearing about compelled behavior, that we're compelled to behave a certain way based on a, a, based on a vision of truth, that would be the prophecies. That those prophecies are, are true. We live in a generation where, where even a more philosophical person will cut off there. That's where they're going to stop. And, and then they're just going to go back to their relativist life and, and make the choice they make, but it will ultimately lead to depression. It doesn't work. And you have to understand that things have to work. You can't just be a talking head or a philosopher and then live a life that doesn't work. You have to have a life that actually works. Now, keeping the prophecies are not the only way that life works. You can, there are principles in life that you can follow and your life will work for you. We're going into Rosh Hashanah for two solid days of, of uh, God awareness. That's an expansion. We're going to expand into God awareness for two days. But then you're going to contract and you're going to contract back into yourself and you're going to ask yourself... How aligned am I with that? How aligned am I with, with God? How, am I, how aligned am I with the prophecies of Israel? And then you got six days, basically, to figure that out, or really six days culminating in a seventh day, where it kind of gets driven in on the fact that, hey, I'm, I was not aligned properly, and that I'm going to align myself now. These 10 days are just to go from two days of expanding into godliness, contracting back to oneself and their own behavior, and then asking themselves, how aligned have I been? And the answer will be not as aligned as I should be, all the way to totally just unaligned. And, and then you have seven days to get your act together which will culminate on Yom Kippur, a major fast day. Why do we have a major fast day there? Is to break the people 
who didn't get this wake-up call. Now, even if you got the wake-up call, you still fast. It's a Torah commandment to fast on Yom Kippur. But Yom Kippur is just a safeguard for people who are too resolute about what's not working. Because as I said before, we all are living inside a dream world of worldviews that somehow support crazy lifestyles. And Rosh Hashanah is built to strip you clean of that and get you real. And, and then reckon with your lifestyle. And then, and then let it go, like give it up. What I'm talking about is our li- wherever our lifestyle contradicts the prophecies. And we have such an extreme day on that last day is just to catch the last few who, who, um, who refuse to surrender. It's to catch the last few who remain resolute on their original notions of how their lives should be conducted. It's for the spiritually dense Yom Kippur. For the spiritually enlightened, it's just as awesome as Rosh Hashanah. Like, Rosh Hashanah is super awesome. And then you get this whole other freebie, super awesome day. But for the rest of us, it is. For the rest of the world, it's, it's just to break you totally so that you can align your life with truth. Okay, blessing everyone with Shabbat Shalom and a happy Rosh Hashanah. Uh, this class feeds a family in Jerusalem. So if everyone can please, this rabbi delivers food to a family. You'll feel much better on Shabbat, especially if you didn't give any tzedakah because your parents are the ones with the money. This is your chance to give a little tzedakah. Okay, because you can also give tzedakah. Shalom. You'll feel good feeding a... You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.